someday we are going to see him and we're going to know him the way he knows us right now. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I look forward to that, hearing his laugh, seeing a glint in his eye. Well, you might be a superhero, but that doesn't mean you don't have super bad days, right? Uh, Elijah is having a string of really bad days. We've been studying him. He's fried. He's cooked. He's burned out. He says to the Lord, take my life. I want to put on the screen again some of the phone numbers that I've been sharing with you. Uh, some of you already have this, but if you don't, I encourage you to write these numbers down. It's great to have them on your phone. Take a picture of them. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, uh, call or text 988, works like 911. And the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, or you can text 88788. Uh, people tend to think that folks think about suicide because they want to end their lives. And that is not true. People think about suicide because they want to end the pain. And that's, that's true for Elijah as well. He flees for his life. It means he still values his life, but the pain of it. He wants to live. The good news is God has help for Elijah and for you and me. So, so we've looked at that help. We've looked at the flight to safety week one, the power of boundaries. We've talked about the shade of rest week two and the practice of Sabbath. Today we come to something uh, for the soul. We come to an experience of grace, grace. And the lesson today is that if we want to pursue mental and emotional wholeness, we need our own experience of grace. All right, let's pick up the story at 200 miles or so south of that broom tree. We'll find Elijah now in a cave on Mount Sinai. Would you pull out your Bible and turn to 1 Kings 19, verses 8 through 12. Uh, in the Pew Bible, that's on page 284. And, uh, and if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this all out together. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 8 through 12. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. <clears throat> what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the question he gets. What are you doing here? Elijah. So let's think about 
that question, some of its parts. First of all, the what question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And the answer is, he's complaining, right? He's complaining, which suggests God gives you words for your pain. And, and, and I, don't, I don't wanna go over this too quickly. God gives you words for your pain. Do you hear Elijah's complaint in verse 19? Listen, he says, I've been zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have forsaken the covenant and they're seeking my life to take it away. It's a complaint. I want to tell you today about a woman named Isabel Hamley. She's given me permission to share her story with you today. Isabel Hamley is a French Old Testament theologian, scholar and theologian. She until recently was the chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is pretty cool. When he has a service for the royal family, some big deal, he'll say, give me a psalm or write a prayer or something like that. Isabel Hamley would be the one who would put the liturgy together. Now she's serving as theological advisor to the House of Bishops. She's a pretty bright woman. She helped the Church of England develop a ministry for people who experience secondary trauma. Turns out when there is a terrorist attack, like in London, the victims and their families, they get trauma care, but not the media. And she noticed this and helped the church develop some programming to support those of you who are in the media when you you have to see these horrible things or tell these awful stories. Uh, So trauma care. And Isabel Hamley actually knows quite a bit about trauma. She has experienced it herself, sadly. When she was a girl, she grew up in a dysfunctional family. Her mother had MS, which debilitated mom, and so Isabel had to raise her younger siblings a lot of pressure and responsibility, and even though both parents were still physically present in the home, it was a a home with violence, and she says almost every kind of abuse you can imagine. By the time Dr. Hamley was a teenager, the cracks began to show. She had an eating disorder, started with anorexia, and then alternated between anorexia and bulimia. She dropped into a deep, chronic depression. She survived two suicide attacks, attempts. Now, nobody knew that this little girl needed help. Um, Why would they? She was a bright, high-functioning kid. She did great at school. Her mother was a pharmacist. Her father was a lawyer, a middle-class French family. On the outside, everything seemed to be going great. No one could imagine that she or anyone else was struggling, but they were. It will turn out in time that God gives her words to talk about the pain. Just like we see here, God gives Elijah words for his pain. And there's a practice here that we want to make sure we catch. And it's, a, it's an ancient Hebrew spiritual practice. And it's called lament. Lament. See, it, it, we laugh. It's easy to misread Elijah as though he's just a complainer. We could think of him as sort of indulging in self-pity. And we want to say to him, pull yourself together, snap out of it. Or on the other hand, we might think this is sort of blasphemy, disrespectful way to speak to God. And we say, oh, please, good people don't speak about God or to God that way. But no, this is not self-pity. This is not blasphemy. This is a practice called lament. 
encouraged by the Lord. So what is lament? Well, it's a complaint, it is a complaint, but it's a complaint in the form of a prayer. It's actually an act of faithfulness. For someone to really practice lament, they have to have a deep and authentic connection with God. Here's my definition of lament. Lament is a prayer that holds together the great promises of God with the deep pain of the world. Dr. Hanley talks about lament in in this way. And you can see this, Elijah is doing this, right? He's holding together these two things, God's sovereignty, shouldn't you be in charge? But the pain of, of, of the world, so God's promise in his sovereignty and the pain of the world in the, the uh, crisis that he's experiencing. Uh, likewise, he holds on to the promise of God in, in, in the implied protection that God gives his people together with the pain of the world in that people are getting killed. The prophets we read in chapter 18 are being systematically slaughtered by Jezebel and Ahab. And he's, he's saying, this is not, if, with a God who, who's a good God, who brings justice to the world, uh, who loves the world, this shouldn't be happening. But he holds on to both. When we, hold on to, when we lament, we hold on to God's goodness and we hold on to a world that's not right. A world in which evil sometimes wins and the innocents suffer. The important thing though in lament is that neither one collapses into the other, we hold on to them both. See, the danger of holding on or trying to hold on to God's promise or goodness without holding on to the pain at the same time is we collapse into denial or avoidance, superficiality, self-righteousness, or triumphalism. Or, Or the danger of trying to hold on to pain without God's promise is that we collapse into despair, cynicism, resignation, bitterness, outrage, violence, vengeance. And actually, Dr. Hanley says that lament is exactly what people who've experienced trauma need. Because what trauma does is it violates our sense of meaning. It disrupts it, and lament restores it. Lament allows us to reprocess our memories, allows us to rewrite the narrative that we're living in, but to do so in the context of God's love and deep faithfulness to process the confrontational emotions, shame, fear, anger, in the context of God's care for us. And this brings deep healing, even joy. In fact, Samuel Ballantyne argues that you can't actually experience true joy or, or real praise to God without also practicing lament. He says this, for doxology, that's praise, to be authentic, it must be sung back down to pain. I like this where hope lives, to hurt where newness surfaces, to death where life is strangely given. You like that? Maybe this is why the Bible is filled with laments. Uh, About half of the Psalms are laments. Uh, Lamentations, we have a whole book of the Bible that's a lament. Job, uh, you know the story of Job, or Jeremiah, also, 52 chapters, laments all the way through. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And God in these texts gives his people words for their pain. John Goldengay, the Old Testament scholar, describes the Psalms as 150 things God doesn't mind having said to him. I like that. So the assignment I want to give you this week is to pray through one of the laments 
You can write down a few if you don't know one. Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 88. That's the hardest of them all, I think. Psalm 130. Pray through one of these laments. Pick one and, and use your situation as you voice it to the Lord. Or better yet, write your own lament. In this class I took last year with Dr. Hamley, she had us write our own laments. It was a helpful exercise to me. The point is, though, that God gives you words for your pain. That's the what. Lament. Elijah is lamenting. Now, the next part of the question, and it's important to get to this next part, because who would have the courage to to lament and use such words of someone as powerful as the Lord without a sense of security? And so I want to explore the grace that is essential for those who lament. Let's look at the here in the question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, where is he? He's on Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a place of grace. Which suggests, secondly, mental and emotional wholeness comes to all who stand in God's grace. Mental and emotional wholeness comes to all who stand in God's grace. What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice verse eight, he's at Horeb. This is another Hebrew word for Mount Sinai. Notice in verse 11 we read, go out and stand on the mountain, the mountain of God before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. He's been brought here, 40 days, 40 nights. He's been brought just to this exact place. Why? Isabel Hamley said she always prayed. As a tiny child, uh, she, she prayed. And she said it was her prayer life that kept her going through all the mental and emotional pain. Which is odd because apparently her family was a very secular family. It was a French family. Um, they did not go to church. None of them were Christians. They, they hated anything associated with God. But she did have a neighbor. Isn't that interesting? She had a neighbor, a little girl next door and the two walked to school together. This neighbor came from a family of Christians. They belonged to a little Baptist community there in the town. The neighbor's father said to her, you should evangelize your friends. And so one day, uh, this girl gave Isabel Hamley a Bible. She gave it to her and she said, here you go. My dad said I have to give this to you. (laughs) And then she said, my dad said don't start at the beginning, which is good advice. So she she was reading, and by the time she got to the book of Romans in chapter 8, she read, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And and she said, and that was it. I became a Christian right there, just reading Romans chapter 8. She experienced grace. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. What a moment in her life. Now that's where Elijah is standing. That's the where of this text. He may not get it yet. Some suggest that Elijah comes here with with a spirit of judgment in his soul. He, He may come here to accuse Israel, to stand before, over against Israel as one of the great prophets of the Old Testament would occasionally do, to stand in covenant lawsuit and say, you've broken the covenant, you've broken God's way. He does say in verse 10, the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. 
Maybe he comes to this place to call down fire. He's done it before, but now maybe he's hoping that in the silence, what he'll hear is a devastating verdict against Ahab, against Jezebel, against the Israelites, maybe even against himself. Remember, he sees himself as a failed prophet. But no, no, not here, not in this place. No, this is a place of of grace. Remember, Mount Sinai is the place where the Lord took a, a, a whole nation of slaves and said, you are my people and I am your God. Remember, Mount Sinai is the place where even when those people are being bound in covenant love to their God, they're they're, they're making a, a golden calf and blaspheming his name. And yet God says, you're still my people, and he renews the covenant with them. It may be that this cave is exactly the cleft where the Lord's hand had protected Moses in grace as his glory passed by and he proclaimed his great sentence name, I am, I am, a gracious and merciful God. No, this is a place of grace. See, we don't necessarily know this, but the Hebrew readers, they're very familiar with this location and they know that the Lord has brought Elijah here for some special reason. He's brought him to a place of grace. So I want to take you back to that scene, the first scene where Moses is there. Would you turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Just look at this for a second. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around this text. It's on page 71 of the black book in the the rack there. Uh, Here's the moment, some 500 years earlier, when the Lord has Moses in this location. And and listen to what the text says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that's Moses, and proclaimed the name, the Lord. Now, by the way, notice the all caps. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that stands for the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's a special name, and it basically means I am. So when you see all caps, that means I am. So proclaim the name I am. And then the Lord, or I am, passed before him and proclaimed, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, There it is, grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation or for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You're like, this is the Old Testament God? Yeah, this is the the Old Testament God. But visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the fourth, third and fourth generation. Now, some of you can't hear anything except for that last line, (laughs) right? You're like, what's with the judgment? Yes, okay, let's talk about that. There is judgment. This is not cheap grace. This is not safe grace. There is no way to experience God's grace without also experiencing his holiness, his absolute and perfect goodness. And that's a good thing. Even though we find ourselves in the brokenness within us confronted by God's goodness and it's uncomfortable, it's good. Isabel Hamley quotes David Carr who writes, for many who suffer deeply, the only thing that frightens them more than the idea that God is punishing them is the idea that God is not in charge at all. When we've gone through trauma, like Elijah has gone, we need to know God is still in charge and God is good. And that he will confront the demons of this world. That he will subjugate evil to his goodness in the end. So we don't want to 
We don't want to avoid judgment, so that's good. But sin has a consequence. Evil will be accounted, accountable. And in fact, Elijah needs to know, as he finds out later in the text, we'll get to this, that God is going to make right what Ahab and Elijah uh, and Jezebel, excuse me, have made wrong. He will make the world right. But you got to understand this, not just the last line, make sure you hear all the stuff above it. Judgment will not get the last word. God's wrath is subsumed by his mercy. What will get the last word is grace. Matthew Lynch is a young theologian up at Regent College and I've corresponded with him. He makes a good point about this. He says, notice the disproportionality between uh, accountability and forgiveness. He says the average Hebrew household at that time was three or four generations. They would live together in a house. So it was not the typical nuclear family that many of us live with. It was three or four generations in a house. So when the Lord says that he will hold uh, three or four generations responsible, what he's saying is I will limit accountability to the community that committed the crime. He's limiting the, he's putting a boundary around accountability. But at the same time then he says, for thousands of generations, there's no limit on my forgiveness. No limit on my steadfast love. No limit on my grace. You see, some of you are math majors and Matthew Lynch tries to work out kind of the the ratio of, of judgment to forgiveness and mercy. And you know, you can't do it. So, so one other thing on this, I want you to notice this since I got you here and we're looking at it closely. Exodus 20 verse six uses part of this sentence name as well, but there's a part of that uh, sentence name in verse six of Exodus 20, which is the 10 commandments, that now the Lord drops out in Exodus 34. And you ask why? So in, in Exodus 26, it says God's grace extends to the thousands, generations. Okay, that's the same. And then there's an addition of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's right there in the Ten Commandments. But, but by the time we get to Exodus 34, what's happened? They've already broken the covenant. They've already proven we don't love God with our whole hearts. And we do break his commandments. And so God says, I'm just going to take that part out. Isn't that interesting? There's no limit on God's grace. So this is what Elijah needs as he's on this journey of, of recovery. The one to, he needs to know that the one who controls the outcomes of his life loves him with a love that's unconditional, inexhaustible, indestructible. And this helps. What I'm saying is that mental and emotional wholeness come to all who stand in God's grace. What are you doing here, Elijah. It's one of those questions like where Jesus asks where you're supposed to like, it scans your whole, am I in grace? What are you doing here? See, grace reminds us that when our minds fail us as in mental illness or when our hearts grow cold, when we're just exhausted or when our souls feel empty because we're fried, there is nothing that separates us from the love of God. He's bigger than all of that. So finally, the third part of this question explores Elijah's relationship to that grace. It's the word you. Will you trust this grace? What are you doing here, Elijah? This suggests three, that you can entrust your life to the one who gives you his life. You can entrust your life to the one who gives life. 
So you may be curious about this. We come to verse 12 to a sound of sheer silence. This Hebrew phrase is notoriously difficult to translate. Nobody really knows what it means. The King James Version translates a still small voice. The NIV translates it a gentle whisper. Uh, Jonathan, jo- Johann Last, a, a theologian, s- translates it roaring and thunderous sound. But whatever it is, the text is clear. It's unexpected. He doesn't hear what he expects to hear. He is surprised. Now one day, Isabel Hamley says, she heard God speaking to her. She heard, she says it's the only time in her life that it has ever happened, but the Lord spoke to her. She heard, she was praying, and she heard these words, I've taken it away. I've taken away the eating disorder. Her immediate reaction was, A, I don't believe you, and B, what took you so long? (laughs) But she says it was true. Overnight, her issues with food were just gone, and she could not explain it. At that time in her life, she had moved from France to England with a scholarship. She'd found her way into a little church that cared for her and prayed for her and with her. She prayed for healing. And this allowed her to work on what was beneath the anorexia, to allow God's grace to touch what was beneath the anorexia, to surface the emotion of her trauma and to lament it. The healing came with therapy and medication, very important, her body, but also this community that would hold her in God's love, would entrust her repeatedly into the great mystery of God's grace, and its power began to do something that she couldn't explain. She was healed of an eating disorder in a single day, but she was not healed of her depression. And I find that interesting. Her chronic depression continues to this day she takes medication for her depression and I want to ask why? Why if it's so easy to heal of an eating disorder would it not be easy to heal her of depression? I mean she's the same person, she's got the same people praying for her, they're offering the same kinds of prayer, it's the same one receiving the prayer, the Lord, same, 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 but then a different outcome. Why? We don't know. Sometimes we receive the grace of a miraculous healing. Sometimes we receive grace to walk faithfully with our infirmity. And the question is, either way, will you trust me to give what you need? You, Elijah, what are you doing here? My own theory about the silence is it's space for an encounter with the Lord, that it's an a face-to-face encounter with the Lord, you and me in this space. Whatever you expected me to be, whatever you expected me to say, Elijah, you're not gonna hear because I'm free, I'm sovereign. I'm on the throne of your life, I'm on the throne of human history. I hold the outcomes of your life and all of history in my hand. Yes, I confront wrong, I draw a limit around it, but I also forgive. My grace is unlimited. And in that silence, he calls the question for Elijah, do you want that? Do you want me? Will you trust me with your Jezebel? Will you trust me when I send the fire and when I don't? Will you trust me enough to confess your sin? Will you trust me enough to believe it is already in my sovereign plan forgiven? Will you trust me when I heal you? Will you trust me when I don't? 
See, this place, this encounter, points us to Jesus Christ. And I think for us in the New Testament, I mean, after the New Testament, it'll be like Peter or Mary, the Lord taking them through the time-space continuum somehow and putting us right there at the cross and saying to you or to me or to Mary or Peter, what are you doing here, Peter, Mary, George? What does this place mean to you personally? We know that the cross changes the outcomes of human history. Our newspaper today is dated by the the date of the cross. We know the values of the culture are permeated with the values of Jesus. That's a good thing, but for many, the story of the cross itself is just too strange to endure. This idea that God is somehow saving the world through the torture and execution of a man under military occupation, we don't fault anyone for finding that foolish. But we're talking about Jesus, the one in whom God made his grace personal. Jesus, I think, is there on Horeb with Elijah. Jesus, I think, is in the silence between Elijah and the Lord. There is no other way for a human being to encounter the mystery of God but through the face of Jesus Christ who makes him known. Will you trust me, Jesus asks. It's a question for Elijah, but it's a question for me too and for you. St. Paul tells us, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Even the message, not just the cross, but even the message, what we're talking about today, it is the power of God for salvation. This idea that God would put a limit around judgment for you, that he'd confine all future judgment of your life to the space around the cross, punish Jesus instead of you, This idea that God would take off all limits of his love and forgiveness for you, that you would rise with Christ, that the cave of his tomb would be empty for you and that you would stand at the right hand of the Father in a place of absolute absolution, in a place of absolute love, in a place of honor, in a place of great authority. No limits on his love for you. See, St. Paul tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. This is the thing about grace. It's not about you. It's the gift of God. It's about what he does for you. Grace is God's unconditional decision about you. Saved is the Greek word for healing. By his wounds, ours are healed. And faith, it means trust. Trust in his promise. And so friends, I ask you, will you trust him? You can entrust your life to the one who gives you his life. Come, trust him. Come, the Lord is passing by right now in our midst. Whether you hear his voice or only hear silence, come and trust his promise to you in Jesus Christ. We invite you to come, if you haven't said yes to Jesus online, to upc.org slash Jesus and click the button there and talk with us. We'd like to help you say yes to Jesus and experience the gift of eternal life by grace Or you can give us a connect card with that box checked and we'll follow up with you. Or you can come down front during the healing prayers just here in a moment and tell the person you'd like to say yes to Jesus. They'll help you. The important thing today is to know that there's no greater healing possible than the healing that God has provided for us in Jesus. And it's where deep healing begins with him, with an encounter with him, with an experience of your own 
of grace. Dr. Hanley finally tells us this is what true healing looks like. She said it's not moving from being a mess to, and you can tell she's been in Britain for a while, having it all sorted. <laughs> no, it's, but it's letting God redeem painful parts even while they're still there. I love the honesty of that. I leave you with this last line of Dr. Hanley's. She says, I'm discovering who I can be with God and in God. The healing continues. Let's pray. God, we're eager to know who you are because it's only when we know who you are that we have the ability to begin to know who we are. Help us on that journey, would you? You took Elijah to Mount Horeb. Take us wherever we need to go. We, we, we have enough faith only to take your hand and to say yes to you and allow you, though, to take us where you want us to go, that we might be healed. Lord, we do believe, but help us in our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.